0: I'm Barry McGovern and this is CrossCurrents, an exploration of contemporary Irish composers and their music. What has shaped the sound of the century, the music created and the composers who have emerged? What does it mean to be an Irish composer?
1: There's a very deep conviction in a lot of us that we Irish composers are not legitimately doing Irish art. We still feel it was something British, something Georgian, something ascendancy, something Victorian. An awful lot of people don't know what it really means to be a composer. I think it's got to do with a post-colonial thing. People never felt that classical music was an Irish thing.
2: I still sometimes actually don't use that term I would say I write music (laughs) but it's not that I don't feel comfortable with that term I just think that sometimes it's weighted with such association and it makes people think of Beethoven and Mozart and you know that it's not a current kind of job description in your everyday world but it is what I do so
3: (laughs) I think it's still sourcing as something a little bit alien that wasn't bred in native soil that it's something that somehow we imported through our colonial past. It should be part of the identity of a modern Ireland. And as composers, we're still fighting for that identity.
4: There are so many more composers in Ireland now. Just the sheer numbers of people doing it
5: means it's more valued,
4: it's more recognized.
5: Whereas now we feel like we're standing in front of younger composers and we're fighting for their position too. And that feels really lovely, is that you feel like you're part of a community.
3: As a composer, the only
0: answer is compose. Compose every day. Ultimately, you don't really think too much about it because there's just so much music that needs to be composed. The voices there of some of the composers in our series. In cross currents, we've gone from the roots of Irish contemporary music and the generation of the 1970s who began to look outwards to Europe and beyond. In this, our final episode, we're connecting the past and the present, looking at the making of a tradition in Irish composition and at the life of a composer in Ireland today. How do we value our composers and their music? And how do we nurture the next generation?
6: There's a very strong, healthy, multi-narrativity that's happening at the moment. Where the Irish voice fits into that, who knows? And maybe this notion of Irish voice has to be let go. I don't think people are really listening to Irish contemporary music. We have our own little enclaves. But in terms of the bigger institutions, I don't think yet
3: they've embraced
6: contemporary Irish music.
7: I think right now tradition's not a suitable word for my generation and younger, particularly the younger composers that I'd follow that are quite active now in the Irish Composers Collective. The influences are, are so vast. There's Certainly not one style emerging. I think that's really good. Really, really good.
0: Composers Benjamin Dwyer and Amanda Feary there. Amanda is one of the new generation. She was born in 1984, at a time when John Kinsella, who was then head of music in RTE, was beginning to write symphonies. That's his tenth symphony we're hearing. Amanda's completing a PhD in composition at Princeton University. She got switched on to composition when she took Donica Dennehy's classes in Trinity College, Dublin.
7: If I was writing for an instrument I wasn't familiar with, I liked the focus, I liked discovering what that instrument could do, listening to repertoire of that instrument that I hadn't heard before. Also, definitely, Donica was very encouraging with me. And that was kind of a drive as well, because he kind of pushed me in certain directions. I never, at that point, was thinking career.
0: That's On Shuffle, Amanda Feary's piece with Crash Ensemble, the ensemble created by Donica Dennehy, Andrew Sinnott and Michael Seaver in 1997. theory says that being away from Ireland, in New York, allowed her to see contemporary music in Ireland afresh.
7: I kind of looked at Ireland in a way where I suddenly realised how rich it is in styles and how diverse it is. And thinking, for such a small country, there's so many composers working in so many different fields and it's not just one sound, it's not one colour or musical language and how open it is.
6: So one must look at the current scene today and admire its vibrance actually. What we have now is so many paths. What we are witnessing in Irish art music today is a kind of a postmodern landscape and it's a free for all now. And it's a tsunami of ideas
3: and on that level it's very healthy. Benjamin
0: Dwyer there, he's professor of music at Middlesex University. Amanda Feary mentioned three defining aspects of change in modern Irish music. Doctors, degrees in composition, Donegal Dennehy and Crash Ensemble. Like Gerald Barry from the generation before him, Dennehy decided he was a composer from early on.
1: I think I was nine. I'd only just started music, and instantly I wanted to become a composer. Yeah, and so what I used to do was I had a tape recorder, and I played the recorder. So I, I mean, I think literally by my second lesson, I decided I'd be a composer, and I would uh, record myself, and then. I got manuscript paper and started transcribing it. So it was instant, yeah. In fact, my father used to take me to these concerts and um, I would just walk past what used to be Carol's Cigarette Factory. And they used to hold these contemporary music concerts in there and I used to go to them as a kid. And I remember like hearing things like James Wilson, Gerald Barry, uh, Raymond Dean, all these, in these concerts as a child.
0: 1988, when Dennehy was 18, and exploring David Bowie in equal measure with Steve Reich and Philip Glass, Gerald Barry's work, Chevaux de Fries, premiered at the BBC Proms.
1: So I was 18 or whatever when I heard Chauveau de Fries. But I remember thinking, wow, this is a huge new direction and the excitement of that and um, just the kind of immediacy of it. And probably Gerald wouldn't like this, but there was almost a minimalism to some of it, that music at that time, but fractured, you know, which gave it this kind of repetitive energy, which then you didn't quite know which way it was going to go, that I just found really compelling. So the pieces I remember from being a kid, really, were like Stravinsky having a huge impact on me. A few things by Stockhausen. I remember a concert by Roger Doyle in the Douglas Hyde. It was kind of theatrical. I remember thinking, that really, I thought, was a very powerful piece. In fact, I have a story about Roger. I was 15 and I used to busk on Grafton Street. And I shouldn't have been in this pub, but I went into a pub and I had the Irish Times and Roger Doyle came up to me and said, Oh, is that today's paper? I'm in it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And um, I said, Oh, are you Roger Doyle? Which doubly made his day. And he went, Yes, I am. And I said, well, I, I know your music. You know my music. And uh, so he was super thrilled. He was both in the paper and he was a kid underage, drinking inside in the pub who recognised him.
0: And that's Syriza One, the Roger Doyle piece, The Young Denny he Heard in 1985.
1: And of course, later then, when I came back and set up Crash, of course, it was interesting then to meet all these composers. And in a weird way, it was kind of strange because I had known their music since being a child. I think that's the great thing about Dublin, a small city like Dublin. And in that period, we kind of often think, oh, new music's only popular now. But it's not true because there was quite a lot happening. This was available to anyone.
0: One of the biggest changes in recent years has been the route to becoming a composer.
3: There are far more university and third level courses generally available where composition is a key element. This was not really the case in the 1970s or even 1980s. So the educational scene has changed very radically over that period. There are courses specifically just for composition. That period, you didn't have that. You maybe got private lessons from a, a composer, such as I did, but you couldn't get a degree in composition uh, in the Royal Irish Academy of Music.
0: The Limerick-born composer John Buckley, there, and that's his Symphony Number no. One we're hearing.
8: If you want to be a composer today, you probably would start off by doing a music degree in one of the colleges, you'd you know, specialize in a composition strand, then you go on and do a PhD in composition, and you join one of the associations of for younger composers, and you and your friends put on performances of your pieces, and there is this sort of very straightforward path to getting to the point where you become a you know, professional composer.
0: Mark Fitzgerald, lecturer in music at DIT's Conservatory of Music and Drama.
8: Today, I think it's so much easier to become a composer than it was in the 70s. Of course, that also brings its downside because it's perhaps easier to fall into more of a sort of groupthink type approach, whereby as part of a small enclosed group of supporting fellow composers, you can end up all following as a group one particular sort of compositional mode, uh, one particular voice, and I think that maybe that's why today, while we have a much larger amount of young composers than would have existed in the 70s, we have less variety of voice. One can go to a concert of young composers' music and it can be difficult to notice the difference between one composer's voice and another.
3: I'm pleased to say that the work of the young composers that I know still shows individuality, a personality. Even if they have been studied with the same teacher on the same course, they're not necessarily all emerging with the same voice. That can't be said of everywhere in the world. I have attended many international contemporary music festivals. I can almost tell with which teacher a certain young composer has studied, because it's a stamp of the style. And I think that's not a good thing.
0: Gerald Barry, who studied with both Stockhausen and Kaggle, is skeptical about the academic route to composition.
9: I was quite struck, actually, reading Raymond Dean's wonderful memoir, how similar his and my backgrounds were. I mean, coming from small rural places, knowing nothing, and discovering things, and the same thread of passion. So, with all these colleges now, music courses and everything, it's, it's fine, really. I mean, well, there won't be more interesting people because of them. There'll be the same amount because I'm kind of fatalistic that way. I don't think things ever change, really. And uh, there is no such thing as progress. There is uh, simply artists working
10: at the highest level.
11: struck by the fact that when I meet somebody nowadays and say are you a composer the answer is usually, oh yeah I'm doing my doctorate in the University of so-and-so to which I'm always tempted to say well I didn't ask you that I asked you are you a composer the idea of getting a doctorate in composition that didn't exist back in my time somehow being certified as a composer because you've gone through a university course and this nowadays that's not just in Ireland this is universal now this is very largely how composers careers are made Certainly when I was starting out there was a sense that uh, it was a brave new world and everything you did was new, it was unprecedented in some sense. Now that sense doesn't exist because you have so many composers, there are so many networks through which they can now get their work performed.
0: Raymond Dean there and that's his recent work Minerva's Owl from Noctuary Book One with Hugh Tinney performing. The American-born composer Jane O'Leary, the force behind the new music ensemble Concord, was unusual in the 70s in that she came to Ireland with a Ph.D. in composition from Princeton University.
4: Actually, when I was doing my degree in Princeton, I think maybe they were one of the few universities that offered composition. It was really a brand new subject for teaching. But now you can't expect to do it or be successful if you aren't enrolled in an education program. So maybe that's one of the big changes over the 40 years or so. Certainly, I don't know from the students that I've had in my teaching at the DIT Conservatory of Music, I don't see any difference. They're all starting out unsure, (laughs) needing to learn from both the craftsmanship and from the practical experience of working with performers and getting their works out there. The individuals themselves, to me, seem very, very much the same. It's just the world is very different for them. There are so many more composers in Ireland now. When I came, there was only a handful. It was very hard to make contact with other composers. Now everybody's in instant contact, knows everything everyone is doing.
0: And that's Jane O'Leary's piece, Silencio della Terra. If Jane O'Leary brought the influence of Princeton to Ireland when she came here in 1972, that current now flows both ways, with Amanda Feary taking her PhD there and Donica Dennehy, a lecturer in the music faculty. Dennehy first went to study in the United States in his early 20s, when he took up a composition scholarship at the University of Illinois. I
1: really didn't have an idea what Illinois was like. I probably would have preferred, you know, to be on one of the coasts, but that was a really happy accident in a way because it was an incredibly experimental department with 12 composition professors, 12 composition professors. (laughs) And... uh, It was like nothing I had been at before. And it was like a huge exposure, almost to stuff I hadn't really considered since my, like, being 12, 13. Yeah, I loved it. And we even had these, like, wild parties. And uh, the only music at this was the most In Your Face Contemporary, like I remember once listening to Feldman. It was for Samuel Beckett. The first time I heard that. Mm -hmm. That party had gone on a bit too long. And I remember thinking, will this piece ever end? And then in the hangover that followed, I became very obsessed with uh, Feldman. Mm -hmm. So I do remember this it being this amazingly positive period of discovery. When I left, I was going to go to The Hague, but then I went for this job at Trinity, and um, I got it. And that was just intense, suddenly, to be kind of working in this environment where everyone was looking to you for stuff. And I never finished the doctorate then and I had set up crash. And uh, I only went back, was it last year now? And finished it because Princeton, when they offered me this job, kind of obliged me to have a, a doctorate. And I did my final exams, you know, and all the old professors were there and it was nice to meet them.
0: Dennehy's piece Streetwalker there with Crash Ensemble.
5: I think there's been an epic change in the last 10 years and I think the crash were really important, the Celtic Tiger and also the crash after the other crash, (laughs) crash number two. Like the whole masters in in multimedia trinity, that was really important and Donica's stewardship of that and that all contributed to an environment. There's all these developments.
0: The Dublin composer Jennifer Walsh is a contemporary of Donica Denaghy.
5: I mean, if you talk to any composer who was born in the 70s in Ireland, what they're all going to say is we had no money and there was no Internet. So the soundtrack that I had access to, a lot of dubbed cassettes that, you know, you got from your friends, but also weird, random stuff in that, like we had my dad's record collection, but that had like Bill Evans and Miles Davis and a lot of modern jazz quartet. He was really into that. And then it had Stravinsky. So I would sort of steal those, and then there was one time that we found a bunch of records in my granddad's attic, and that's how I got Bob Dylan records for the first time. So there was bizarre things that were sort of hand-me-downs.
0: Walsh was a trumpet player in the Irish Youth Orchestra, but she says she was always writing. She studied composition with John Maxwell Geddes at the Royal Scottish Academy, with Kevin Volans in Dublin, and graduated from Northwestern University Chicago with a doctoral degree in composition in June 2002. It was while she was in Chicago that she began to use her voice and to improvise.
5: Right from the get go, I was doing extended techniques. That's what I did from the first time I opened my mouth as a vocalist. Like Amnon Vollman, who is my teacher in Chicago, who's very dear to me. And the first lesson that I ever had with him, he said two things. He said, I want you to come back next week and I want you to write some pieces for person. And he said, And the other thing I want you to do is go and listen to some Meredith Monk. Uh-hey,
10: uh-hey, 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 uh-hey.
5: Now my voice is nothing like Meredith Monk's and I don't write music that sounds anything like Meredith Monk's but that week, the liberation that I felt and the excitement when I wrote pieces for myself to perform and they were all really weird, almost sort of slightly OCD autistic things little weird patterns being tapped out on my hands and my legs that stuck with me for years and years the experience of writing those pieces and when I listened to Meredith Monk and I listened to Our Lady of Late, that whole CD and it's just one person and it's their voice and it's a wine glass and I was like... Self-sufficiency, autonomy, agency, that's what I want. And I just knew that's, that's what I wanted.
0: That awakening to experimental vocal and improvisation work led Walsh to create a piece called Osma Chian that won her the Kranichstein Music Prize at the International Summer Course for New Music in Darmstadt.
5: And it was written out of that practice, thinking of what I'd been learning my voice could do in these improv sessions. Came from a completely organic place, not from a planned place, anything like that. It did change things very much because all of a sudden it led to me doing a lot more work in Germany. And maybe it was the prize, maybe it was the performance, maybe it was a combination of both, and then each time I would do work, that would lead to a new opportunity. That was all of a sudden a context where um, people were really excited about what I was doing, you know, and somebody saying something's right. Because up to that point, like a standard issue Irish person, I would sort of felt like an imposter and was what I was doing any use. So to have that big stamp of approval, of course it helped.
0: The music directions Dennehy and Walsh took were as diverse as those taken by Gerald Barry and Roger Doyle, the generation before them. But just like the composers of the 70s, they don't feel they exist within a tradition, but that they invented their own.
5: I didn't feel that it was an experimental tradition. And I really thought, you know, I'm never going to fit in in Ireland. I really felt that way because I thought Roger Doyle, Raymond Dean, all those people were very fine composers, but they were writing in an aesthetic style that didn't resonate with me.
1: Yeah, I don't know if you can say that as a real tradition, because the thing is that many of the older generation of composers didn't really teach here. So that's what forms a kind of a tradition in a way. I feel like I'm yeah, a self-made composer. I really do feel that for myself. Crash has managed to contribute to a, a, a tradition here and, and maybe I have, I don't know. So there was a bunch of reasons for setting up Crash Ensemble. One is I wanted a different kind of ensemble in Dublin and I thought, okay, what better way than just setting it up myself. And everything felt very optimistic at that period in the late 90s because there was the Celtic Tiger and there was some money for things. But I was also interested in, in a kind of concert experience that was less stuffy for want of a better word, less kind of classical where where you could have amplification, you could play with the notion of amplification. On one level, I was very confident about it. For me to predict that it would be going this strong 20 years later, I'm not so sure. I didn't even really think about that at the time. But I did know that we weren't going to be just flash in the pan, and that if you set up something like this, you have a kind of a duty towards it. People can sense the kind of energy and commitment that you put into something. Always, they always can sense that. I mean, I was so determined to make Crash work that in those days I did, like, everything. I used to put up the posters. It's just a joy to be with Crash and Salmo.
0: And that's Donegha Dennehy's piece, Reservoir, we're hearing. Dennehy, through both his work at Trinity College Dublin and Crash Ensemble, is credited as a significant influence by many of the next wave of composers, including Linda Buckley and Garrett Sholdyce. Buckley had been studying with the music pioneer Mel Mercier at University College Cork.
2: I met Donica Dennehy before I went to Trinity actually, while studying at UCC. He came to do a concert with the Crash Ensemble and they were very new at that time, they had just been set up and I was really struck by his approach as well to music and in a way almost from Mel, a sense of a joyous energy about it, that it was something to be really excited about.
6: The year before I started my degree in Trinity, I attended the Irish Composition Summer School and everyone was talking about Donica. His reputation preceded him and his his music and and the work of Crash Ensemble was sort of in the air. At that point in my undergraduate degree I started organising concerts with Benedict Schlepper Connolly and we were both involved in the Young Composers Collective at the time and from there we started to grow Ergodos.
2: I think there can be sometimes a sense that music written at university is something that has to have a very strong academic leaning and I felt that the music that I was listening to or the concerts I was going to maybe were sometimes at odds with studies of very serious harmony and counterpoint. They're very good tools to have as a composer and I'm really glad that I have them. But I felt that at this point the lines were definitely becoming blurred and the feeling that you know you could go and listen to goth punk music, and then you could also listen to a string quartet and and why do they have to be in completely opposite worlds.
10: Around
6: about 2005 or so, I started to get involved in the Young Composers Collective, which was sort of beginning at that point. Dave Flynn had wanted to start something for composers to make opportunities to have their own music performed, and there were a bunch of us that were involved in that. There was a feeling that anything was possible. There was a kind of a lot of spiritual support coming from Donica Dennehy, who had this immense kind of DIY ethic, and he was telling us all to not wait around and just make the platform for our work, and that's what we did.
0: For composers like Buckley and Scholdyce, contemporary music has no barriers or boundaries.
6: I don't know any composers of my generation who are only interested in music of the Western classical tradition. I mean, none of us are only interested in that music, you know? None of us are purely referring to our Chirino or Barrio, or, I mean, we grew up listening to whatever, you know, the pop music of the 90s. A lot of the conversations were talking about Kanye West or talking about Beyoncé or whatever, and that stuff is as relevant to us as Irvo Part or Feldman or whatever.
0: That openness to musical sources and influences has brought young composers back to the well of Irish tradition, to traditional music and instruments.
12: I guess the first significant piece I wrote, really where I went for an Irish sound, was the string quartet, The Cranning my second string quartet and I wrote that when I was in the Guildhall School of Music and there wasn't really much encouragement before that in the Irish education system that I felt towards integrating the two having an Irish sound within classical music but when I went to the Guildhall I presented some ideas to my teacher there Malcolm Singer and he really encouraged me and he explained it in quite a straightforward way he said I'm Jewish It's my culture. I'm also English. I'm not going to deny either. I study Jewish music and I bring Jewish themes into my music and you should do the same. Because I remember going, thinking, can I do this? Is this allowed?
0: Dave Flynn is a Dublin composer who crosses genres. Garrett Scholdice mentioned him as a founder of the Young Composers Collective. Like Roger Doyle before him, as a teenager, Flynn mixed popular music with contemporary classical. Flynn studied at the DIT Conservatory before becoming the first Irish person to be accepted to the Masters in Composition at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama.
12: Going away is a really good thing for perspective because people in another country don't have the same kind of prejudices. That People have in Ireland, even in England. I had just kind of finished the first movement of the string quartet, which is called Slip. It's mainly based on the slip jig rhythm, but it goes off into all sorts of other influences. And the guy I got to meet was Howard Skempton, who's very well known. And I presented him nervously with the score, and he started looking at it, and he opened it, and he's like, Oh, wow, I love this, straight away he's like, oh, this is great.
0: That journey that began with the award-winning work, The Cranning, led Flynn to do his doctorate at DIT on traditional Irish music as a path to new music.
12: People were discouraged from playing traditional music. If they were studying a classical instrument, they were discouraged. And if they were playing traditional music they were either told well you have to study one you can't study the other and i'd say there'd be a certain element of that with composition or whatever and i know some musicians who are only in their 20s now the same when they went to classical lessons when they were very young they were told you can't study both it's down to education and prejudice and i think the colonial thing has to be acknowledged as well that the traditional irish Culture was just practically taken away at some point, and I think traditional Irish music only survived by people really loving it.
0: It seems we've come full circle from our first episode, as this tension in the relationship between Irish traditional and classical music was foreshadowed by Sean O'Riada and his struggle to integrate both cultures in his work.
10: In That's
0: Donika Denny and Crash Ensemble's groundbreaking piece Gros August Boss featuring the Shannos singer Irla Olinard Shai-
1: But my parents came from Kerry. So I had this kind of Kerry influence on me. And we used to always go to Kerry on holidays. And uh, my mom's parents in particular used to host these all night parties. They were amazing. Where everyone would come from the locality and sing and say poetry. And, and that kind of stuck with me as well. I loved those events. And my father's mother had been a traditional fiddle player. They came from the Slíve Lúkra. Part of Kerry, So I didn't grow up with classical music at all. And also the stuff I did with Irla, and, and that still has an impact on my music, you know, it's, the Shandos thing. Like you could think of Sean or Rita, but I was not following Sean or Rita in that regard at all. I was coming at it like Irla said at the start when she didn't really know what the, what the fuck I was doing at all, <laughs> that I was coming at it like an alien. <laughs>
12: around that time I was working with Martin Hayes for the first time. I realised after working with classical musicians, trying to get them to play trad, it might be better to try and work with traditional musicians, try and get them to play new compositions. I was doing that around the same time Donna he was working with Earl Lowell
0: Leonard. Dave Flynn there, and that's the sound of his work Eintacht, what he calls his fiddle concerto. Written for and premiered by Martin Hayes and the RTE Concert Orchestra in 2010.
12: And that came just from me becoming a fan of his. And after I wrote the slip piece the, and the string quartet, the Craning, and had this idea of collaborating with traditional musician, I just went straight for the top. <laughs> there just was something happening then, and I think that helped break down a lot of
10: barriers.
12: years it's getting into the mainstream more and more like you wouldn't call the glomi a classical group but they certainly bring in elements from classical and traditional and new york
10: and
12: then they're creating a sound which has now gone global and popular you know i would say that that is as a result of that period when different people were collaborating
0: and that's The Gloaming and Song 44 with Irla O'Linnort, who, of course, started singing as a child with Sean O'Reilly in Kor Hule. <laughs> Linda Buckley's roots are also the traditional music and song of Cork, but she has an affinity with Iceland. It's an inspiration to her.
2: Iceland is somewhere that I always felt a connection with even far before I had ever gone there.
0: It was while, on a residency in Iceland, she began a song cycle for Írlóu Linnárd.
2: It was actually a really transformative experience working with beautiful old Gaelic love poetry, all about love and loss, actually, and going back as far as the 7th century to the 11th, to the 17th, up until the 20th century. the title of the song cycle is oircht amara which is from a line of the poem by Cathleen Maud Aurecht, which means entanglement i found a recurring thread between these poems and they're all about that power of love and also the grief of loss and the song cycle for Írla is all about that
0: This connecting of the past and the present, the historic story and language of Ireland blending with other global influences, is a recurrent theme in new music
5: today. It ties in with me talking about imagining music that I couldn't get access to, and it ties in very much about this relationship with Ireland, relationship with ancestors, with heritage and thinking, OK, well, if I don't have the people that make sense to me, I'll just invent my own.
0: Jennifer Walsh's work, The Ashthach Project, Historical Documents of the Irish Avant-Garde, playfully reappropriates Irish tradition by reinventing it.
5: solo <laughs> so it continues to be a project that is very much a thought experiment like a what if what if there hadn't been a repressive church what if the country hadn't been as poor as it was what if there had been more experimental art in ireland what would it have been like if eileen gray had stayed in ireland and become the head of the national college of art what would have happened how would we, as children born into this tradition, how would our lives have changed if, you know, Irish data is sound poetry was taught in schools, <laughs> you know? So it's not a hoax. It's a deeply serious play.
0: Jennifer Walsh, like Roger Doyle, experiments with sound in a digital age. Computing and the internet have not only changed the process of composition, but how music is accessed, shared, and created.
5: I think what I'm actually trying to do is point to right now. Like when I'm using technology, it's about trying to say this is happening right now. This is the way that we use these things right now. When we talk about technology and music, there's several different things we can talk about. Like early computer music, we can definitely say that involves technology, but that has nothing to do with social media or the network culture or the condition that we live in now. The way we talk about our lives are all informed by this. And I want to try and pay attention to that. So that's what I'm trying to do in quite a few of my pieces. And they are being made in an environment where there may be very little technology on the stage. There might be just a projector and a film, but like my piece, Durdon, for the quiet music ensemble, even though that piece is about Quivine Branagh and Pórag Macioló and it's two old, dead fictional Irish outsider artists. And I'm talking about stuff that ostensibly happened in the fifties. That piece for me is a post-internet piece, because it's about the archive opening up and having access to all these memories and people being finally able to pull up these things, which they feel like make sense of their lives. Even though it's a piece that there's no references to the web, there's very little technology on stage, I would still link it to that way of being in the world, which is that it has a texture and it has a a cadence and a structure that couldn't have occurred until after 2006, until after, like, Web 2.0.
0: But for some young composers emerging in Ireland, the European avant-garde had little appeal.
13: It seemed to me that a lot of contemporary music in Ireland was very influenced by serialism. Now, I hadn't heard a lot of Dunica's music at the time, but, say, with Gerald Barry's music or uh, Raymond Dean's music, you know, it was very influenced by the European avant-garde. And I just found that I didn't really connect with it. I had a huge respect for it, but it didn't really feel like something that I was ever going to be able to express through myself.
0: Michael Gallen is a young composer and performer from Monaghan. He was born in 1986, the same generation as Amanda Feary and Garrett Sholdyce. And like Dave Flynn, Gallen mixes genres, traditional, rock
13: and classical. And not of the reason for doing music was that I had a gift for it and that everybody else did it in the family. And, you know, my mother would have been driven to have us all play the piano and would have sat with me practicing and that kind of thing. But I didn't love it. But really, I would say that it was through playing trad music and then subsequently playing in bands and things like that that I fell in love with music. I would say from when I was about 14 or 15, there was a period of time where things were kind of, you know, quite intensive. I, my eldest brother passed away and I remember my relationship with music changing quite a lot around that time, as it might have done anyway, but it became very intense. I remember for the first time writing songs about things and, and finding that there was a release in it and then really rediscovering the piano. It was a, a huge thing for me to kind of stay up at night when my parents had gone to bed and just play the piano for ages. and just improvise on things and then kind of write little pieces of stuff and I felt like it was a massive emotional outlet and once that started happening it became very different from just having a gift or something or being talented it was really opening a door into an entirely different relationship with myself and with the world and I think once I started feeling that that was there it just wasn't going to be possible to do anything else
0: Gallen felt a bit of an outsider when he came to Dublin, detached from both the avant-garde school of people like Gerald Barry and the
13: Dennehy fascination with American minimalism. A lot of those guys are people that did go abroad to study and were very, very influenced by the European avant-garde. And then what was happening in Dublin at the time when I was a student would have been the early days of Crash, a lot of which was American-influenced music. And at the time knew that I was more interested in So I suppose music that focused on harmony or timbre more than on kind of rhythm. So I think that in part going abroad was a thing of getting away from what was happening in in Ireland at the time. I mean, I think that was quite a reactionary thing as well. I just felt like the scene wasn't really something that I fitted into. It was also maybe just a little bit of, you know, feeling like an outsider and, well, I'm just going to go off and do my own thing and, you know, I'll come back in a while.
0: Gallon chose to go to Paris to study composition and he's now artist-in-residence at Trinity College Dublin where he's completing a doctorate. His work ranges from dance to choral, orchestral to opera. And that's part of his orchestral suite, Wild Stories, performed by the RTE Concert Orchestra for RTE Lyric FM series on Oscar Wilde. It's telling that a young, emerging composer like Michael Gallen so easily includes opera in his portfolio of composition. In looking across Irish contemporary music in the last 40 years, perhaps one of the most striking changes is in opera. Ireland, a country not then renowned for its operatic tradition, has now produced at least two acclaimed opera composers, Gerald Barry and Donald Dennehy, and both in their quite diverse approaches to the genre, in work like Barry's The Importance of Being Earnest and Dennehy's The Last Hotel, have shaped a particularly Irish vocal experience. Dennehy's The Last Hotel. But both Barry and Dennehy, in their own way, warn against rear-view vision.
1: One of the great things you have to remember is that we have a tendency to distort. So nearly always people think of the time when they were in their... 30s, or whatever, as being the great golden era. I'm very wary of that kind of way of thinking. And, uh, and by the same token, to say everything is much better now is also something that, well, I'd really need to be a historian and evaluate everything to see. But there
9: is a real energy here still. So the only positive side about more activity, say in Dublin, in new music, would be it makes it easier for young people who discover that they're wonderful suddenly, for them to appear and be visible.
6: What else? My name is Ernest in town and Jack in the country. You are a secret
3: barbriest. Briest, what do you mean, my Briest? Why are you Ernest in town and Jack in the country? Who Who is is this
9: so you can just simply try and do something that will wear well over time, that will have some mystery in it which is sewn into it in some intangible way, which will be timeless. And that's what makes the music or say, someone like Schubert,' so timeless, because it has this mystery in it, and that mystery can never be fathomed or
10: solved.. <laughs> Never simple, modern
3: life would be very tedious if it were. I learned modern literature, a complete impossibility.
0: That mystery that can never be fathomed or solved. And that's Gerald Barry's The Importance of Being Brother, Earnest.
10: You are one of the most advanced.
0: So, in the end, as always, it's the music that matters and may endure.
6: I would have always said that I place the audience at the very centre of the practice. I would have always said that I make music to move people. Uh, Music is primarily an emotional rather than a cerebral experience. And I've come to realise that if you are actually going to move somebody, you probably won't know how you did it or why it happened.
4: (laughs) There are three components there's the composer the performer and the listener so it's been my mission in everything I've done (laughs) to bring these three together the listener is probably the most important in my opinion because if you don't have the listener you don't make a connection and you can't make music without connecting
0: You see, in The Heel of the Hunt, you can't write for anybody. You can only write what you want to write. And if you specifically write for a particular audience, say, you're never going to get it right. So I'll divide my time either between pushing the work forward with new creativity or going back over passages and filling them out. Some days you sit down there and stare at the wall. And some days I'd come up absolutely banjaxed after writing about 10 pages without knowing that was going to happen. So there's no easy way to create anything, I suppose. But it's hugely rewarding and it's a way of life. Garrett Sholdyce, Jane O'Leary and John Kinsella are there. Jennifer Walsh and Sholdyce, as contemporary composers writing in the midst of all these currents of influences, are optimistic about the future for Irish composers.
6: Yeah. I think it's fabulous. The scene seems to be quite rich. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's always economically hard to be an artist or to be a composer, no matter where you are.
5: And in Ireland, one of the things that I think that is very special is that you can have Donica Dennehy Kevin Volans Gerald Barry Andrew Hamilton me Gareth Ben Linda Buckley Judith Ring all these different people and that's only just the first off the top of my head that in other contexts would consider to be stylistically opposed but we'd all sit down and have a beer and support one another and that's what's special to me is that it's a community and it's about friendship and aesthetics can be wildly variant but everybody everybody's still saying oh, I liked your piece and trying to listen to one another
6: maybe for me being an Irish composer is kind of bound up as this opportunity to sit on the outside and take notes. The idea of drawing inspiration from potentially all musical cultures without needing to become caged or restricted. Donica Dennehy used to talk about this too, the idea of like sitting on the edge of Europe. We're kind of also on the edge of America in a way and we don't have to be completely immersed in either. We can just sort of take from both and from elsewhere. Being on the edge of Europe maybe is like, it's in the psyche a little bit, and that's maybe as far as I would want to go with the idea of being an Irish composer.
0: Crosscurrents is an Athena Media production for RTE Lyric FM, made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland and the TV license fee, and in partnership with the Contemporary Music Centre. You can find podcasts for the series on the project website, crosscurrents.ie. I'm Barry McGovern. Thank you for listening.